from the latest on Caribbean cruises to kosher safaris, pilgrimages to Jewish Eastern Europe and award-winning wines and international cuisine in sun-drenched Tel Aviv. Sit back and enjoy the trip with the travel edition of the Jerusalem Post podcast. Guten Nacht. Oh, Welsh. <laughs> Polish. Actually, I think that might be German. I'm very impressed. Does your German stretch any further than that? Danke. I managed a question in German before. I said, all ist gut. And I went up at the end of gut. And the guy said, yeah, well, everything's fine. So I had a conversation in a foreign language. But if he went, yeah, is there, everything is fine. <laughs> he clearly didn't want to carry on. He's probably from Manchester if he said it like that. We are in the capital of Germany. Bonn. I think you'll find that with the fall of communism and the reunification of the two sides of Germany, the capital actually moved back to its former home of Berlin. I've been here once before. I came about five, six years ago, and a lot of the remnants and traces of what was East Germany and what was West Germany have long since disappeared. So as I've been telling you repeatedly since we found out that we were coming have to... Have you been to Germany before, David? I've been to Germany many times, but the Have you been to Berlin? The only time I came to Berlin was in 1990, about three, four months after the wall came down, as they talk about in these parts. And, and then, of course, the they weren't remnants because it was still very visceral. Um, it was very interesting uh, as an experience, as a student in those days, to come and see with your own eyes what was going on here. We've only been here in Berlin this evening for half an hour, an hour, but everything looks very different, incredibly different to how it was 32 years ago. Both of us, I think, have done the major sites of Berlin in, in our times here. Yep, absolutely. Um, you probably haven't seen the Holocaust Memorial. No, um, but the Brandenburg Gate, absolutely. Yeah. And, and, and in fact... The Reichstag. The, yeah, the, the way it is today, absolutely not. That's not what it looked like in, uh, in 1990. But that's not why we're here. We're going to look at a particular aspect of Berlin. We're going to look at Berlin and its Jewishness, its Israeliness, Isra- almost. Absolutely. I, th- I think what we're going to find over the next 24 hours or so is that Israeliness has in many ways replaced Jewishness here. And the Jewish population of Berlin is continuing to grow. I think it's somewhere between fifty and 60,000 people now. And a lot of those are Israelis and former uh, residents of the Soviet Union or residents of the former Soviet Union who shifted this way looking for a better future. The Israeliness or Jewishness has already started and we've only been in our hotel for a few minutes. We'll get our hosts here as experts to try and tell us about the hotel. But as we walked in the door behind us was a mezuzah. Mm-hmm. Then I saw a sign with the word Cohen on it. Amigo Cohen. Yes. And there was a menu for the restaurant in the next door hotel, and it's called Habayit Shel Amano, which means the house of Amano. And the menu is very Israeli. There is tomato salad, Jerusalem salad, you can have falafel, hummus, and best of all, a challah sandwich. It's time for us to... Actually, we were on separate floors. Thankfully. We're two floors apart, so I don't hear the snoring this time. Beautiful corner studio rooms in the Hotel Romy by Amano. We're going to head to sleep. In the morning, as we say, we'll meet the uh, people behind the hotel and get to understand that Israeli-Jewish concept here. And then we will be heading out into Berlin and hope that you will join us. But before we do that... A quiz question. John F. Kennedy is famed for his speech in Berlin where he said... Ich bin ein Berliner. I am a donut. But is a Berliner a donut with a hole in the middle? Or is it a filled donut? The answer at the end of the pod. This is the Jerusalem Post podcast travel edition. Find us on Facebook, Instagram and Twitter at markdavidpod or mail us at markdavidpod at gmail.com. One of the aspects of this trip is that the German National Tourist Office have said we need to try and talk about sustainable tourism. It's an important part of tourism. David and I are very lucky. We fly everywhere. Which is very environmentally friendly. Which is very environmentally unfriendly. But people are always going to fly. 
people who want to visit other places are going to take the method of transport that is most convenient for them or for us. Mm. So we promised the lovely Goldie, who helped set up this trip in the German National Tourist Office, that we would try and do something sustainable. So I've decided you and I should make a pledge to mm -hmm. try and at least do one sustainable thing. So what I'm going to do on this trip is I'm going to be completely vegetarian. Mm -hmm. I'm going to eat no meat and no fish and then at least try and save a few animals and do my bit. You're already vegetarian, so that I wouldn't am. be a stretch for you. I've been vegetarian since I was a small child, so the idea of environment didn't mean anything to me. What I'm going to do, and we're both going to do, now we're in Berlin, the public transportation system here is said to be excellent. We're going to find out we're not going to be heading out in taxis. We're not going to have any vehicles that are brought to us by the tourism authority. We're hitting the buses, the train, and the underground. You mean I have to give back the limousine? <laughs> one more thing. There was a sign on my door in the Romy Hotel saying, we only have one planet. If you can, try and avoid having your room made up every day. So I'm going to put the little sign outside my door saying, please do not make up my room while I'm here. I apologise to the hotel for the smell at the end of three days, but I am going to do my bit and try and save some towels and some washing. Good morning. We are in the lovely Romy Hotel, Romy by Amano. We've had a delightful breakfast. And as we said last night, there were little traces of Israel and, and Jewish food there. On the walls of the breakfast room, there were two big posters, one which said, Shalom Amigo, and one which said Il Chaim. Let's find out more about the hotel. We're joined by Zev Rosenberg, who is the head of business development for Amano Group. Zev, what is Amano? Amano is a, a little hotel group with 11 hotels, with restaurants, bars, and rooftop bars. We have a Berlin company, uh, also the headquarters is in, is in Berlin. We started working at uh, 209 with uh, our first hotel, Amano Hotel. And the first very good going Amano bar it was the first hotel bar that works really very well. They uh, saw, oh, it's going quite well. Let's open another hotel and another hotel. And now we have in Berlin eight hotels. We have one hotel in uh, Munich, one in Düsseldorf, and uh, one in London. Four restaurants in Berlin, about seven bars in Berlin in our hotels and rooftop bars. And it makes fun. So we are very a food and beverage hotel group. Obviously, we're from the Jerusalem Post, and we noticed the sort of more Israeli Jewish thing. So we, as we pointed out to listeners last night, there's a mezuzah on the inside of the door and so on. How much are you going for that kind of theme? Is that just in the Romi, or is that across the board? Across the board. We have our restaurant Joseph with Israeli street food. Then we have our restaurant Mani. It's a fine dining Israeli food. And then we have the Habait at the Hotel Amano. And this is also Israeli street food. Here in the Romi Hotel, we will open mostly in autumn uh, Amigo Coin. It will be in a Mexican-Israeli uh, restaurant. We are working on it. That This is our DNA uh, to do something in, the, in this Israeli food. No kosher food but kosher style. We're in Berlin, not in Tel Aviv. Why are Amano interested in going for this Israeli vibe, this is Jewish-Israeli theme? We have Jewish tradition. The owners are Jewish. The owner likes Tel Aviv very much. And this lifestyle of Tel Aviv and beach and party and drinks and shots and quite light food with the hummus and that we have. And uh, we saw that it's working very well. So the Amano feeling is going really in Berlin through the city. And uh, many non-Jewish people are coming to us. Many Israelis are coming to us. And also the Jewish community loves us because they they can get a very good hummus and chicken and pargiot. How do you say pargiot? Spring, spring chicken. Spring chicken. Okay, no, I don't know if it's a German word for mm -hmm. pargiot, spring chicken. If it is a German word, it would be incredibly long. Probably. We have a good mix of people, young people, middle-aged people, and a bit older people that likes to have the celebration and to have a bit of Tel Aviv feeling in our restaurants and bars. One of the really good things about this hotel that we're in, the Romy, is we are directly opposite Berlin Central Station, which I would try and pronounce in German, Hauptbahnhof. 
Exactly. Ah, you you can start living here. So you <laughs> have the first word that you need. Yeah, it's okay. I'm I'm still struggling with my my Hebrew after 12 years in Israel. So taking on another language would completely finish me off. But it, it's great. The German public transport system here is excellent. Everything here is probably a 20-30 minute walk away from the Romi. Yeah, yeah. The Romi next to the Hauptbahnhof. Yeah. We are around about 30 minutes walking distance to most of the important places. For the Kofusendam, it's better maybe to take a train there, but it's also you're then in 10 minutes there. And Berlin has one of the best transportation system also in Germany because it's a huge city. Now you have also the bikes. You're from A to B quite fast with the car. It's not so easy, but now we have in Germany a nine euro ticket for the whole month. So many people take their transportation, the official transportation, like myself today. I'm about 50 minutes faster than with the car. Zev Rosenberg from Amano Group, thank you very much. You're welcome. So David and I have finally pulled ourselves away from the luxury of our hotel. We are now with a tour guide who will introduce herself in a second. We've come to a very interesting square. There's a church in the background, and behind me is a sculpture. Firstly, can you introduce yourself? Yes, I'm Tatiana Orosa. I'm a tour guide here in Berlin. Specialize on Jewish themes also, and have been doing that for more than 30 years. I'm afraid. The next three hours, hopefully, we won't give you too much trouble, and you'll enjoy taking us around. Where have you brought us to first? I brought you actually to where the first synagogue was built in 1714. Also, Jews had been here since the Middle Ages, 13th century. Can you describe a little about the establishment of Berlin? Was it always the capital of Germany? Um, just a little bit about how Berlin was formed and how then the Jews came to Berlin. Actually, this was the eastern region here where Slavic people settled. And in, only in the 12th century, the Germans came to conquer these eastern regions of Germany. So the Slavic people assimilated. And the conquerors founded Berlin and Cologne in the 13th century. And that's where we are. This was the first settlement here, a German settlement. There were other Slavic settlements around, which are now districts of the city. And uh, St. Mary's is very close, the second oldest church from 1270, at, at this time still Catholic. So that's how Berlin was born. And it was called a Mark, which is German for two Mark, to draw a line, the borderland. And the conquerors ruled here in the 13th century, but died out so that in the 15th century, uh, Hohenzollern from the Hohenzollern family, Nürnberg, Friedrich, got a present and that was the eastern region of Germany, the Mark Brandenburg. So he established the Hohenzollern dynasty that had been ruling here for 500 years, made it the kingdom of Prussia 1701. Berlin was the capital of Prussia and became even the capital of entire Germany after the foundation of a German empire 1871. That's Berlin's long tradition as a German capital. The Jews came here with the first settlers actually, almost, in the 13th century and had a little uh, settlement called the Jews' Court, not far from the medieval town hall. And yeah, developed uh, a life, but were not allowed to have a synagogue. So they had their worship rooms in their homes and their private houses. Were expelled twice in the 16th century for, one must say, invented reasons. One in 1510, they came back and again 1571, they were expelled from the county of Brandenburg. Almost exactly 100 years later, in 1671, 50 Jewish families expelled from Vienna came here to where we are, into the Spandau suburb at that time outside, and settled down. And from that developed the Jewish community and society that existed until the Nazis came to power. 1871 came the Eastern European Ashkenazi Jews who were expelled from Galicia, There was a Russian program, so they were actually on their way to United States, but many found very good conditions here for the market, low income taxes, tolls were abolished. That was a time when the German promotion period began, so lots of entrepreneurs came over, and so the Jews, who became emancipated, were equal in front of the law, and were welcomed here, which doesn't mean that anti-Semitism didn't exist in these times, but they had already a lot contributed to Germany's achievements and wealth in these times. The square that we're currently standing in looked very different. It was the site of the old synagogue. 
What happened to that synagogue and what has replaced it here? So that was their first synagogue, which was allowed to have here. And the queen was present in 1714, the wife of the so-called soldiers king. And so she kind of yeah, was at least present when it was inaugurated. It was destroyed in Kristallnacht, harmed, harmed in uh, Rice Program night 1938, destroyed in the Second World War. So there's only this empty space here with the memorial behind us. Tell us a little bit about the memorial. The memorial refers actually to the factory action from 27th of February 1943, when Josef Goebbels wanted to make Berlin completely free of Jews. That was after the Wannsee Conference that happened on 20th of January 1942. Most of the Jews were already deported to extermination camps. But Jews who were married with Christians were not attacked, not touched, if they married before 1935, because that is when the Nazis defined the Jews a race, that's when the Jews lost their civil rights and the Nazis did their own definition who is Jewish and who is not. So intermarriages were not allowed anymore, intimate contact was not allowed, it was a crime. If, if Jews would do it, they would bring them into concentration camps. If non-Jews would do it, they would be brought into concentration camps too. But again, intermarriages made before 1935 were not touched. And 50% of Jewish marriages were intermarriages in the 1920s. Mostly Jewish men. Uh, and they were working in factories uh, or were at their homes. Uh, normally they had to do slave labor and laid out, for instance, the rails for the tram were not allowed to go to the shelters. They still worked when Berlin was bombed. And many, many died in, in this. So on February 1943, Goebbels attacked those Jews too. So they were seized from the factory, still in working clothes, from the home, still in pajamas, and were brought to collecting points. So the synagogue, which was empty and couldn't be used anymore for services, served as a collecting point. So the Jews were brought here. And next door where the Jewish welfare institution was, that was also used as a collecting point. The Jews were brought to be deported from there to extermination camps. Their children from these intermarriages that were in kindergarten were also seized and brought to collecting points. And then the women wanted to pick their children up. They went there, went home. Their husbands didn't come. So they connected themselves and found out where they were brought to and came here to Rosenstraße, stood in front of the synagogue and protested, give us our husbands back for a couple of days until Josef Goebbels, Minister for Propaganda, reacted and had them set free. And the question is why? We are here in February 1943, January, February, the Germans fought against the, the Soviets in the war and lost the Battle of Stalingrad. So the Germans were in a very bad mood. And to calm them down, because these weren't Jewish people who protested, they had just mostly Jewish husbands, that's why he did the compromise and had them set free. Which doesn't mean that they didn't die in the Holocaust, they were still brought to concentration camps after that happened in the years later. Only thousand of finally 170,000 Berlin Jews survived in Berlin. But not all of them died, or half of the German Jews made it to exile. We've walked through a, a series of beautiful courtyards that once upon a time were owned by Jewish people there are now beautiful businesses here. Remember again, we're in the eastern side of Berlin. So all of the developments, all of the beautiful creations are post the 1990s. And now it's a place that lots of particularly younger people wander around. There are hip places to, to drink and party. There are beautiful small boutiques and restaurants. and. Down one of the passageways in this area, which is not restored like everywhere else, we've come into what is now a museum, but clearly has a past. Tell us about it. It's called the Otto White Workshop of the Blind. Otto White, not Jewish, had a workshop here. He did brushes and brooms. He himself was almost blind. The less you see, the better you produce brushes and brooms with your hands because your other senses are better developed. 
and also his uh, employees were handicapped and seeing. And under the Nazi regime, he tried to get Jewish in seeing disabled people who were brush makers and could just do it to put them under his feathers and to help them because he had money. He had, by the way, good relations to the Gestapo. They partly produced for the Gestapo, were always under the control of them, of course. And like Oskar Schindler, he bribed them with wine and whatever he could get to hide Jews. That's what he did. Um, we have here interesting destinies of especially women who survived. They both were hidden by him first. They worked as secretaries, which was not allowed. Jews had a work in production that was already forbidden. Alice Licht was a young secretary and they had an alliance also. Otto Weid was married with another one. And her parents were hidden in a hiding place somewhere else where he had another shop. Other Jews were hidden here in this workshop, the Horned family, four people in a room. And once, I think it was Chaim Horn, went out, what you shouldn't have done in the Nazi time, but sometimes you had, to, you had to go to the doctor or whatever. So he met a friend who was Jewish, a very close friend, was very happy that he saw him after a long time and told him about he, where he was hidden and also where the secretary, Alice, and her parents were hidden. And this Jewish friend betrayed him. So he reported to the Gestapo. I must confess it's understandable because the Jews were set under pressure. Uh, they threatened them, we harm your family if you don't collaborate with us. So the Gestapo came, discovered the horns. They were all deported to Auschwitz. They didn't survive, they were all killed. And Alice's uh, parents were found too in a hiding place. And Alice was not there at the time, so the Gestapo told Otto Weid, tell her to report to the police voluntarily. Otherwise, we send her parents to Auschwitz. If she comes voluntarily, we bring them to Terezin only. So she went to the Gestapo to, um, to help her parents. But then she was seized and the entire family was deported to Auschwitz. On the way there, Alice wrote a postcard the postcard is here in the museum, we have a copy of it, and wrote to Otto Weid and explained to him where they are going. She wrote about Birkenau, but obviously they didn't exactly know what Birkenau actually meant. They thought it would be a labor camp or something. We are in a good health, don't worry. So the postcard landed up here because somebody mailed it, as it was usual in these times. And Otto Weid didn't hesitate, uh, put his brushes in a case, and went to Auschwitz to help. So he had to find out who would help him to collaborate. He found a young woman in, in the place where she, she was brought to. I, I'm not quite sure if it was still Auschwitz. It, she, they were deported to another camp um, in Christianstadt. And he found a woman who had a little hotel and she helped him. So he gave her money and civil cloths for Alice and another one and she advised uh, he, this Polish guy, he's going there in and out, and so he invited the guy for, for dinner, and he helped him. He brought in information to the camp, and that Adlice finally got. So she got informed about the hiding place, the hotel where she get money, and uh, several cloths, it was very important. And she made it, she made it back here. So she was finally rescued. Her parents not, they were all killed in Auschwitz. But then she immediately went to the United States and never came back. What happened to Otto? Otto White died in 1947. He was a pretty old man already and died, was honored by the Jews, became a regis in Yad Vashem. He has a tree. Do we know how many people he saved? I think it was in about 100. Keeping up with our pledge to be sustainable and environmentally friendly, we're going to carry on our interview on the tram on the way to lunch. We've been walking around the Mitte district, we've just been past the new synagogue, we've been to the Jewish girls' school, we've heard stories about Leo Beck, Bertolt Brecht, and we've been to the Jewish graveyard and seen the grave of Moses Mendelssohn. Tatiana, if people want to come on a tour with you, how do they get hold of you? Through maybe Visit Berlin that connected us. This is the company here in Berlin that provide guides. And you can ask for me, but you need to know my name, Tatjana Rossa. Do you have an email address where people can contact you? Tatjana.rossa 
Rossa, R-O-S-S-A, at t-online.de. How do you spell Tatiana? T-A-T-J-A-N-A. Tatiana, it's been a wonderful couple of hours walking around Berlin. It's part of Berlin that I didn't see the first time I was here. It's amazing to see the restoration, how the Jewish sites have been preserved, but then how everything has been brought into the modern age. And it's a really, really beautiful neighborhood. Thank you. You're very welcome. Thank you. You're listening to the Jerusalem Post podcast, Travel Edition, with Mark Gordon and David Harris. So it's Mark's happy time of the day. It's lunchtime. We've arrived at a restaurant called Canaan. As you can tell from the name, it has a Jewish theme, but so, so, so much more. We're with Oz. Oz, introduce yourself and then tell us about this delicious spread in front of us. Hello, uh, welcome to Canaan, the Israeli-Palestinian restaurant where I love to say everything that impossible we make possible. We have a delicatess of flavors and dishes that we make with Israeli and Palestinian dishes. You have the malawach that we're doing with a sabich combination, eggplant, potato and poached egg with tahini and mango curry sauce. Uh, the Israeli know it as amba. Uh, we have the schug, we have the preserved the pickled lemon, we have vegan meatballs, that it's a recipes of the grandmother of Jalil, my Palestinian partner and my Moroccan grandmother. And we create one dish of hummus with those meatballs together. And the shakshuka that you have, we do as well, like in a, a very unique way. We took a roasted Palestinian salad of paprika, tomato and eggplants. And we add it into the shakshuka with the Moroccan paprika. We have the sweet potato salad with pomegranate, date, honey. We have the rotebite salad with a sheep cheese that we teach the locals, uh, farmers here in Germany to make this kind of jabna. We brought basically and combining technologies and techniques and uh, recipes to one more delicious, as we believe, and nicer flavor. The colors in front of us are amazing, especially on that sabich with the the yellow and the white, the shakshuka, it's, it's like a rainbow in front of us. Tell us a bit about the concept of Canaan. It's a test lab, like where we're making not just with food, like culture-wise, uh, fashion, uh, art, in every aspect. Uh, we try to, to take both of our history shared point and establish that uh, together and to combine the kind of food, flavors and experience of what we believe the future of peace would look like in Israel. The name Knan, by the way, as much as you think it's very Jewish, we share it with the Christian and we share it with uh, the Muslim. And it's the land of Hebraim. And we want to remind everyone that we all coming from one tent, one father, and we have much more in common to, to share and uh, to present, especially here in Europe, uh, than uh, the things that uh, we fight about. We'll get on to a little bit more about your staff and so on in a minute, but where should we start in terms of what you would I like think, us to I eat? Think, uh, what I always recommend to all my guests, just combine things together. Like, there is no right and wrong. You have the pita bread, just mm-hmm. like you would have it in Palestine and Israel. Mm-hmm. The fluffy. There's also is that there is challah, 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 course, think, yeah. that we bake with zatars and Arabic spices as well. It's all vegan as yeah. well as the challah. The idea of making like vegan vegetarian place, mm-hmm. uh, it's to create it because of uh, create kind of a place with that the energy wise and everything there is no one dying for your pleasure or your uh, experience. The eggs coming from farms of. Uh, free wild. So, Mark, what are you going to have first? A plate, I think. <laughs> I'm trying the beet. I would recommend you not to try just one salad or one shakshuka. Try it with other stuff, like, together. To actually mix them in my mouth at the same Definitely. time. Definitely. That, that's the beauty okay. in our kitchen. I think it's something that... So, shakshuka and beet at the same go time. Go for it, yeah. How do you say batavon in Arabic? Sahten. Ah, sahten. Yeah. Okay, sahten. Mm. What have you got? 
So far, I've I've had a go at the um, shakshuka. I've now got one of the vegan meatballs to mix with it. It's come with um, a preserved mm. lemon sauce, curcuma and cumin. Mm. It's really a mix of two sauces that mm. uh, uh, my, both of our grandmother have. It's nice, right? Mm. I know, it's really nice. Did you try the hummus? I just took some of the hummus so in with the meatballs. See, like we claim to have the best hummus in town. In you Europe. invented hummus. We know there's hummus uh, wars out I, there. I think, I think we choose to, to, to have hummus for the same reason we believe that Hummus, it's one thing that they fight uh, about just as much as Jerusalem. Who invent hummus? Who invent uh, falafel? And hummus, like Jerusalem, like everything in this conflict, it, we find it's a lot of semantic uh, mm -hmm. things. Because the hummus that you will eat as a Palestinian in Gaza will be nothing like the hummus you would eat in Akko as a Palestinian. And as an Israeli, when we claim to have hummus, we eat it in a certain way that it's not like the Palestinian... Talking of hummus, one of the things that struck us when we first arrived was the staff are wearing these great t-shirts and they say, Ich bin homosexual. Can you tell us about the LGBT element of the Canaan restaurant? Of course, but the homosexual, as much as the reference to the gay community, it's basically we create new terms that allowed people to share under one share. When, when we, we're meeting people from Palestine, people from Syria and people uh, straight and gays or trans or whatever. We were looking for a word that will define us uh, and will not hurt nobody. And homosexual was that term, like I'm not gay, I'm not straight, I'm not Israeli, I'm not Palestinian. I'm a person of peace, uh, I'm a person that see the philosophy behind Knan and those people that believe in what we believe, we call them homosexuals. This is that uh, a way to define them. And that terms basically is a shelter for everyone that want to feel belong to the idea, to the way of Knan. Before we say goodbye to you, you've got a whole philosophy. We're not going to go into it. No. We will give you in a minute an opportunity to tell people where they can find out more details but from all of our conversation and more importantly from everything that you've done over these years if there's one sentence one thought that you would like our listeners to take away from this interview and from you what would that thought be I will tell you a small story I had in the in the garden and I think this give all the, the idea of uh, in a way of Knan what Knan managed to do so we're sitting, friend uh, from Palestine, a worker from Palestine named uh, Nazir, and a guy uh, from Syria, Riyas. And we're sitting uh, outside where we were back then, where our garden. We were eating together, and then uh, we start talking about our service in the army because Riyas was in the Syrian army, I was in the Israeli army, and uh, Nazir was is in own uh, active uh, in east of Jerusalem uh, fighting. Each one of us lost someone who dare and care about, but we manage in this point to forget about it. Like, you know, like old friends that knew each other and they forgot what they fight about from beginning, like what was all the fight about. And I think this is what Knan create every moment, every place where you have Ashkan from Iran and Shaket from Israel and in the bar, uh, transgender from Ukraine or in the kitchen, Wasim from Syria and Johnny from Eritrea. So these kind of things can happen just in our kind of place and hopefully that's the future in Israel will be like. The website, if you want more details, is kanan-berlin.de. Oz, thank you. Todaraba, shukran. Thank you, thank you very much. Berlin Fact File. You can fly to Berlin with United Airlines from Newark and North Atlantic Airways from JFK and Los Angeles. El Al and EasyJet fly to Berlin from Tel Aviv. There are great connections to Berlin with Air France through Paris, KLM in Amsterdam, British Airways from London Heathrow or Aer Lingus from Dublin. Berlin's public transportation is fantastic and that starts at the airport. We recommend the 39 euro Berlin welcome card Ours was valid for 72 hours on all public transport, 
including the train from the airport and city trams, buses, trains and underground. We stayed at the delightful Romy by Amano. Of course, there are hundreds of hotels of all classes throughout the city alongside homes to rent. Hotel chains represented in the city include the Kempinski, Crown Plaza, Sheraton, Best Western, Hilton and Ritz-Carlton. The local currency in Berlin is the Euro and one Euro is worth around one dollar. Berlin enjoys a continental climate. That means cold winters with an average temperature of around freezing and moderately warm summers with daytime temperatures around 25 degrees Celsius, 77 degrees Fahrenheit. We ate at the delightful vegetarian cocktail bistro Bon Vivant and the Israeli-Palestinian themed vegetarian restaurant Canaan. There are 23 Michelin-starred restaurants in Berlin. One of them is the Levant themed prison owned by chef Gal Ben Moshe. Kosher eateries include Evgi, Boba Speiser Salon, Bleiberg's, Feinberg's and Hummus and Friends. Chabad also has a cafe which delivers around the city. One of the highlights of a visit to Germany and to Berlin is to see the Jewish Museum here in, in the capital of Germany. And we're delighted that we're doing that in the company of the director of the Jewish Museum Berlin, Hetty Berg. Thank you very much indeed for your time. You're very welcome. Tell us a little bit of the history of this place, please. The Jewish Museum Berlin was uh, opened in 2001. We're telling here the history and the present of Jewish life in Germany, in all its complexities and ambivalences. One of the big features of this museum is that it is in this breathtaking building of Daniel Liebeskind. It is famous for its architecture all over the world and in these 20 years we got over 13 million visitors and visitors come from all over the world. We noticed as we came down Lindenstrasse there wasn't just the Daniel Liebskin building which you can see a long way off there's a, an older building in front of it and then over the road there was the Museum Academy and a sign saying Anoha. Was all of that opened in 2001 or different sections have no, opened? No, that, that was opened successively. The Baroque building, the old building and the extension of Daniel Liebeskind that is like the Jewish Museum itself. And across the road in 2012, uh, we got the former flower wholesale market, a huge building where Daniel Liebeskind built in the archives of the museum, the library and the academy, where we have lots of programs, etc. Only last year, we opened the really amazing children's world Anoa, where the story of the Ark of Noah is being told and children from three till ten years old are having there an incredible experience with beautiful animals that have been made by upcycling materials where we discuss with the children about climate change, how to live with each other, how to take care of the species and how to think about a better world. You're going to take us on a highlights tour of the museum, but before we get started, you spoke of complexities and ambivalences. What do you mean? The story of the Jews in these lands, what we now call Germany, is a very long history. It's 1700 years old, so it started in 321, and it was characterized by a lot of cultural exchange, of course, by living together, but also expulsions and, of course, the Shoah in the 20th century. So it has known a lot of ups and downs, but German Jews also felt very much that they belonged to this society, and especially after the emancipation in the 19th century, and it culminated of course also in the Weimar Republic so it is a very multifaceted history uh, that we tell from a Jewish perspective so and there's not just one Jewish perspective it's of course a plural so we try also to show uh, Jewish life in the present and to have uh, this plural vocal approach that we have many Jews today that also tell what it means to be living as a Jew in Germany now. 
we started our tour earlier today when we were in the Jewish quarter of Berlin, talking about Jews in Berlin, 12th, 13th century. Here in the museum is an exhibition taking history back to 300 CE, maybe even before CE. What we tell here is the uh, beginning of the history of Jews in what we call now Germany, which started in 321. But how did the Jews get here at all? And this is what we show in this uh, multimedia installation. Uh, we give a little bit the background of where, where Jews come from, uh, destruction of the temple, etc. And then at a certain point that they come with the Roman troops, they cross the Alps. And they come north of the Alps. How do we know that that is the start of Jews in this area? This is because we have some traces of it, some very old objects, like a tiny, tiny bit of parchment with some lines of the Shema Yisrael. We have a ring with the menorah on it, and we have a packaging seal also with the menorah on it. And those are the very first things that were found that prove that there were Jews in this area. Hi, this is David Harris from the Jerusalem Post podcast, Travel Edition. Find us on Facebook, Instagram and Twitter at MarkDavidPod or mail us at MarkDavidPod at gmail.com. So we've talked a little about the early chronology. In a museum, especially a new museum, a modern museum, you use as many vehicles as possible. You try to appeal to all the senses. We've been sniffing, we've been touching, and just now we've been listening as well. Tell us a little bit about how you include everybody and all parts of us as people go around the exhibit. To be open to all people is very important for us. For example, we have a section about how does Judaism sound and then you have like the traditional sounds of the shofar and somebody reading uh, the Torah in synagogue, etc. But also Jewish music that is from ceremonial music, but also Barbara Streisand, klezmer music, etc. To make it accessible for different kinds of people, we also have, for example, then with a song in sign language, you feel this vibration if you or the rhythm of the music when you sit down and also to make it uh, accessible for people, for example, that, uh, that cannot hear or that see badly. We have our chronological uh, rooms are all the time intersected with thematic rooms, like on Jewish tradition in the beginning and here what does Judaism sound like. By having these theme rooms, you get a more uh, varied uh, parkours that you don't have just a whole chronology after each other, but every time there's a surprise of a theme where you, you can uh, experience something else and also often do things like when you touch, you hear the sound of the shofar, etc. For the younger people and some of the older ones for whom a museum is, oh, or they feel, okay, we're here, we have to go to a museum you're making them think, ah, maybe there is something for us here. Yes, and there's also a lot of fun elements because, of course, there's a, the history of Jews in Germany is very heavy. People think straight away, of course, of the Shoah, of the Holocaust, uh, but people are also allowed in this museum to enjoy themselves. It, is, you know, it can also be fun, so we also have a lot of fun elements. The... Jewish Museum Berlin is truly immense. You can walk through it very quickly. You can also spend probably days here. We have wandered through lots of the exhibits in the company of Hattie Berg, who we'll hear from again in a, a few seconds' time. Amongst the things that we saw, we came down a staircase, and it was very bright and lots of yellows and, and, and just wonderful bright colours highlighting famous Jews throughout history, including Amy Winehouse, the singer, including Jesus, and, and many other names that might be a little bit more expected. We've also walked through the disturbing parts of the Holocaust and, and 20th century history, but now we've stopped by a flamenco dress. Why is it here? 
Yeah, and what people expect in a Jewish museum are the Shabbat candles, the Chanukah, menorah, etc. But uh, we have also here many objects that because of their story become a Jewish object. For this flamenco dress, there was this duo, a brother and a sister, who danced flamenco together. And in, during the war in Poland, they lost track of each other. And the brother never saw his sister again. In post-war Germany, he performed in clubs in the flamenco dresses of his sister, so in drag, in memory of her. And this is also, of course, where we deal with, with gender, etc. This uh, Rubinstein, he was a performer in the clubs. And because these dresses, because of this whole war story, he donated them to us. And now it's in the museum as a Jewish object. Other than my favorite part of the museum, which was the kosher gummy bear exhibition, although I believe that could have been a vending machine, there was a very large interactive wall and the opportunity to see some of the exhibits that aren't necessarily on display, but a chance to sit and learn about the museum's very large collection of Jewish objects, Jewish history, Jewish memorabilia. Do you have a favorite part or corner of this museum? Well, every time I go through, uh, I have a different favorite. I think it's also always very much depending on the mood you're in. So sometimes I love the music rooms where we were, for example, but I'm also always very touched by the interviews that were taken in 1946 with survivors in the displaced person camps uh, by an American psychologist, because now oral history in Spielberg archives is of course very well known but that somebody thought of doing that straight after the liberation I find also really amazing uh, there's some figures in in the Hall of Fame which is of course very much with tongue-in-cheek uh, that we have this Hall of Fame uh, like Rosa Luxemburg because you know to remember that in in the history of, uh, of communism and socialism there were a lot of Jews that played a very large role also women there are lots of things that I love we've come to the end of a whistle-stop tour it's beautifully presented. Every inch, every centimeter of the museum has been thought out. It's not just a lot. It feels like a large space. But as you walk, you see thought and the craft that's gone into making this museum. How can our listeners find out more about the museum? Well, we have, of course, the website. And there you can find all the normal information but you can also find a lot of content on our website you can find gmb app which will give you a very good impression about the museum with lots of extra information you can also download that in the app store and what is very important is that the museum is for free so you don't have to pay for it it's good to buy a ticket online or to reserve a ticket online but also that is not absolutely necessary you can come in our garden there's a cafe you can eat outside you can bring your own food and picnic in the garden whatever you like and we're always open except for the major Jewish holidays and Christian holidays. So I really invite everybody who listens to this podcast uh, do come around and judge for yourself. Hetty Berg, director of the Jewish Museum Berlin. It's been a pleasure to spend an hour in your company walking around. Thank you very much. It was my pleasure. You're listening to the Jerusalem Post podcast travel edition with Mark Gordon and David Harris. I don't know if you ever saw the film A Night at the Museum with, I think, Ben Stiller? Indeed. Where he was a security guard in a museum at night and the museum was closed and all the exhibits come to life? Yes. We're in the Anoha Museum over the road from the Jewish Museum Berlin. Mm-hmm. And it's closed. <laughs> We've been let in through the back doors. It's dark. It's not very dark because we can see what's around us and we are surrounded by animals. And Noah is all about Noah's Ark. 
we could sing one of the songs about Noah's Ark, but there are gorillas and flamingo and warthogs and deer and birds, and basically animals. But not all of them are coming two by two. To our left, there's a film which introduces the idea of Noah within the Jewish ritual, within the Torah. There are children seeing a Torah scroll and reading the story of Noah. And as we head around the corner, uh, we're coming to an open area. And apparently, with a bit of luck, if Mark stamps, you might hear something. I think they've got a damp problem here. Look at this lovely new museum, and there are patches on the floor that look like puddles. They look like puddles indeed. Go for it. This is great. A quick funny story. As we came in through the back door, we were told everything switched off and nothing will make a noise. David walked into a puddle and nearly had the shock of his life because we didn't know there were puddles. And suddenly it started raining, but we didn't get wet. Anyway, let's carry on a little bit around on our secret tour of the Anoa Museum. Two by two, hurrah, hurrah. Our tour guide is very shy and won't come onto the microphone. So she's telling us things first, and then we have to repeat them back. So something that's very important to point out about Anoha is that it's not so much a museum, it's an experience. So after you've jumped through the puddles, you come around the corner, you make a boat, and after you make a boat, you take it for a sail. Sail. Thank you very much, Mark. And can I just say, our tour guide may be shy, but come the puddles, she was jumping up and down. She wasn't going to miss an opportunity with the puddles. So you make a boat and then you come to this installation, which looks like a conveyor belt full of water. And then this happens. You run the water, you put your boat on this little water slide and the boat travels about 50 meters round the corner, 60 yards for our American listeners. And then at the end, there's a little mountain, an iceberg, representing Mount Ararat. So you get the opportunity to take your boat, like Noah, it's not a boat or a ship, it's an ark, and take it all the way to Mount Ararat. And of course, I'm going to criticize Mark as I always do, because he talked about 60 meters or 60 yards. I would say this is 50 about meters or 60 one yards. five meters, 15 meters would it be would more accurate. It would take me around 10 seconds to run it, based on world records. <laughs> for, for all that you're an accountant. Oh, a slide. <laughs> See you later. Oh, drums. <laughs> Mark was not kidding. He's actually found a drum, but the drum is a part of a music. Oh, saxophone a musical giraffe. This is an incredible exhibit. I still want to try to get our tour guide onto microphone, but she really doesn't want to. Take her back to the puddles and get her jumping because she seems to like that. <laughs> but the, this is a phenomenal dis- Ooh, A blackboard. <laughs> Oh dear. When we were over the road in the museum and the director was there, Mark was so well behaved. And this- Ooh, high heel shoes. <laughs> There are lots and lots and lots of different forms of animal. There's in the distance a an orangutan swinging. There's, is that a horse, a bear? That's a bear in the distance, isn't it? Oh, a polar bear. <laughs> and, and each one of them is built in a different way. And one of the things that you're encouraged to do if you come to Anoha is to touch everything, is to play with everything, is to experience, to get a feel for what's going on, to get an understanding of the biblical story and the significance that it plays as a central part of the Jewish narrative. But if you look at all the exhibits here in yes. between the ark, you'll notice something. They're all recycled from something else. Ooh! If you look at the polar bear's mouth, it's a brush. Mm-hmm. The two ducks in front of us, it's pillows and with, gloves, the feet are gloves. With paper clips for beaks. And, and a golf ball over there on their little baby. Oh, the golf ball is the head. The hippopotamus. Look at the hippopotamus. Quick, 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 come quick, around. run. Right, we're running around to the hippopotamus because we are three years old and having lots and lots of fun. But okay. the hippo is made from a vat, maybe a vat that once contained milk or something like that. Its gums are made of boxing gloves. 
And are those a couple of hammer that their heads are the axes? The ax- it's not a real axe in a kids' museum. It's an axe it's handle. handle. Yes. Ice skates for the teeth at the top. A golf club for the ears. It's fantastic. And our silent tour guide has brought over something that rattles. It's a frog, I think, with bells for eyes, a purse for a mouth. Is it a frog or is it an octopus? No, it's a frog. It's a frog. But it's got like, oh, four legs. I can't count beyond <laughs> four. O- how many do octopi have? Octopuses. Eight. Uh, eight. 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 Oh, a turtle. Oh, he's still at it. <laughs> no, seriously. The Ark is beautiful. It's a great space to have fun, to be young, to be a child. And in fact, really, it's meant for children, sorry. Yeah. But it also, it's a lesson in sustainability. Everything here has been recycled. And even the wood from the Ark is local wood that comes from sustainable forests. The concept is Noah, but as Mark mentions, there's issues of recycling the kids also come in here in school groups and can sit down and learn things but also it's very much experiential and one of the things that they pick up here whether it's taught to them or, or they learn for themselves is how animals of different types manage to live together for example on the ark there are nocturnal animals there are going to be birds there are the giraffes there are going to be the small insects how do they all manage and of course in these days where we're talking about issues of the environment the future talk of uh, climate change and so on how do we as people and of course the animals live together and ensure that we all have a better future and those are the types of lessons that people are picking up in this type of a museum. Ladies and gentlemen the website is anoa a-n-o-h-a dot d-e anoa.de. Oh David look there's a rhino made out of a fire hose. <laughs> well that was fun. Was rather. What a great city so much of Israeli Jewish interest here. Yeah, you wouldn't really think it, given... I mean, I've read in the news there were more and more Israelis moving to Berlin, but just the way that Jewish and Israeli culture seems to have merged into Berlin, um, it's fascinating. And a lot of the conversations that we had, whether we were recording or just people that we met along the way, there's so much respect for what was a rich Jewish tradition here, the feelings of regret about what happened 80 years ago, and that the welcoming of Israeli culture, the, not only the welcoming, the embrace of Israeli culture throughout this city. I may have said this earlier, but I don't think I've spent a time in a city where I've gone to everything and thought, I wish I had more time. I wish I could do three times as much time with the person taking us around mm-hmm. at the place we were everything we did was just fascinating at which point we should say our thank yous the guides that you've heard from the hosts that you heard from brought everything to light but as ever first we'll say our thank yous to those people behind the scenes thank you to katarina to joyce and to alexandra at visit berlin and goldie at the german national tourist office And we have thank yous to say also to those people we met during our visit. At the Romy Hotel by Amano, I'd like to say a big thank you to Zev and Christoph for helping us, supporting us. And Christoph for his very lovely tour of not just this hotel, Mm -hmm. but the Grand Hotel by Amano next door. Mm -hmm. And then Tatiana for the tour and Oz for not only a fabulous meal, but also the incredible conversation about the work that he's doing and at the jewish museum what an outstanding building Mm -hmm. amazing museum big thank you to hetty berg the director of the museum lena and rudy for all their help along the way and mark as we always do at this point people are dying to know desperate to know the answer to your quiz question My quiz question was about the famous JFK saying from the Berlin Wall, Ich bin ein Berliner. If you'd have been to Canaan, he may have said, Ich bin ein homosexual, but Mm -hmm. he didn't. He said, Ich bin ein Berliner. Berliner, as we know, is not somebody from Berlin, but a donut. And I asked you whether it was a filled donut or a ring donut. And the answer is, it's a creamy filled donut. Fascinating. Thank you for that. 
please, please, please share this podcast with your friends if you've enjoyed it and even if you didn't enjoy it. And if you want to contact us or follow us on social media at Mark David Pod on Facebook, on Instagram, on Twitter, you can email us markdavidpod at gmail.com. Subscribe and write something lovely. We will be back in Berlin in a future podcast, not too far away from now. But for this time, all it remains is for the both of us to say to you, Auf Wiedersehen. Farewell. Farewell.